Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mystery surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Erin Fleming. Hey, welcome to Red Ron Blonde. I'm always looking for a case that's interesting and always taking suggestions. So that's how I got this week's episode. My boyfriend sent me another fascinating article, and this one's from CNN. Adrian Brown died in 1996, and at that time, no foul play was suspected. But she had a friend who always insisted it was murder. This friend got the help of a detective who found some damning evidence and gave that to a reporter. Oh, and Adrienne Brown just happened to be the wife of famed soul legend James Brown. Strap in. This week should be called Kill Your Idols. I'm going to discuss whether or not James Brown had his wife murdered. If you're a new listener, I want to welcome you. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe. It's pretty much the only way to know when a new episode drops. I can't get this podcast on a regular schedule. It's kind of all over the place. Work in retail, it's a hot mess. The dreams to work a 9-to-5 job and get it on a regular schedule. But anyways, please subscribe. You can follow the podcast on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. And there's a Red Rum Blonde Facebook group. I want to give a very warm, special welcome to the newest member, Niels. Man, thank you for all your support. Niels wrote a really lovely review of the podcast, 
and it's really appreciated. Now, on to the show. I have to admit, I don't know much about the singer James Brown's personal life. You know, everyone knows his music, of course. We all know his presence that he commanded on stage, the whole thing with the cape being draped over his shoulders, his big persona. And we all know about his arrest later on in life when he infamously ran from the cops. But, you know, I didn't know much about his personal life. So this article for CNN by Thomas Lake was very revealing, very disturbing. I can't say I look at James Brown the same way now. He was born James Joseph Brown on May 3, 1933 in Barnwell, South Carolina, in a one-room wooden shack to his 16-year-old mother, Susie. He was intended to be named after his 22-year-old father, Joseph, but his middle name was inadvertently switched on his birth certificate. The family was extremely poor, and his father was very abusive, causing his mother to leave the family and move to New York. His father then took him to live with his aunt, Honey, who ran a brothel in Augusta, Georgia. So this is not the ideal childhood. And it was all during the Great Depression, so money was really hard to come by. As a kid, he did whatever he could to earn extra money, from shining shoes to picking cotton to dancing. If you want to get some kind of perspective on how poor he was, here's a quote I read on biography.com. I started shining shoes at three cents, then went up to five cents, then six cents. I never did get up to a dime. I was nine years old before I got a pair of underwear from a real store. All of my clothes were made from sacks and things like that. It's really sad childhood that he had, and he never went far in school. He was kicked out of sixth grade for insufficient clothing. From there, he turned to a life of crime. And when he was 16, he was arrested for stealing a car and got three years in prison. While he was in prison, he found gospel music. He organized a gospel choir with a guy named Bobby Bird, who was an aspiring singer and pianist. And together, they would collaborate later on in his career. When he was released from prison, Brown spent about two years playing baseball and boxing semi-professionally. And then he eventually reconnected with Bird upon his release. And they formed this group called the Gospel Starlaters, which they later renamed the Famous Flames. The group had a number one hit on the R&B charts, but they broke up shortly afterwards. And Brown embarked on a solo career before once again joining with Bobby Bird. Together, they formed a production company called Fair Deal. And then Brown toured relentlessly, earning himself the nickname the hardest working man in show business. From there, he rocketed to success and became the musical icon that we know today with hits like Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud, I Got You, I Feel Good, and Papa's Got a Brand New Bag. But this man had a violent streak, which he probably got from his father or watching his father abuse his mother. It really didn't take much to incur his wrath. One of his earliest beefs was with a guy named Joe Tex, who was also an R&B singer. They were signed to the same label, thus they competed over stage time and record sales. And apparently, Brown stole Tex's ex-wife named B. Tex released a song called You Keep Her, dissing Brown by name. 
Tex mocked this on stage, pretending it tangled in the cape. Brown did not like this public mockery. He pulled out two shotguns, opening fire, wounding about six to seven people. Luckily, nobody was wounded seriously, and Brown paid everybody off with $100 bills. And these violent actions also came through in his personal relationships with his wives and his girlfriends. He was married a total of four times, and each relationship was fraught with abuse. Wife Tammy Terrell claimed he went so far as to hit her one time with a hammer. The relationship that we're going to focus on today was a third marriage to Adrian Louise Rodriguez. She was a hairstylist when she met the soul singer. Adrian was raised in South Central Los Angeles by her abusive grandmother. So there they had something in common. And it was really no surprise when they married quickly. She probably just wanted to get out of that house. Years later, when Adrian died two days after having a cosmetic surgery procedure, it was just assumed her death was due to complications. However, her friend Jackie Hollander always thought foul play was involved. But years went by before anyone seriously looked into anything other than natural causes. Jackie contacted a Beverly Hills police detective who was assigned to the case, a guy named Steve Miller. And CNN's Thomas Lake contacted him for the story since this detective kept all of his notes. In his notebook 16 years later, he noticed notes from an informant who was adamant about Adrian being murdered and knowing who did it. Story jumps back to 1988, when Adrian and Jackie met in secret in Augusta, Georgia. They'd been warned not to be friends by James Brown and his lawyer. But there was something that was bothering Adrian. James came home really high after being out all night. And to top things off, she found blonde hair and an earring in his van. She knew it was Jackie's. But that's when Jackie broke down and told her everything that happened that night. Jackie had been to James Brown's office to discuss some charity work. She worked with him as a songwriter and a backup singer, as well as working with him on charitable contributions. So under the guise of showing her this car that he was working on, he lured her into his vehicle and drove her to an isolated area. And there he repeatedly raped her for hours by gunpoint. And when James arrived home, he was high. He threw Adrian's clothes onto the yard and he pointed a rifle at her. She called the police but didn't press charges. They were called back to the residence about three days later when Adrian claimed he fired that rifle at her again, as well as beat her with a metal pipe. There was a neighbor who corroborated the story, as well as there being bullet hole in Adrian's car tire. Brown was arrested, and Jackie hoped police would somehow follow clues back to her rape that occurred earlier that night. But nothing came of the rape or the shots that were fired at Adrian. And when the women met, Adrian explained why. She said she had to drop the charges out of fear. Her husband had both gangsters and police on his payroll. And Brown wasn't stupid. He knew that if these two women talked, they could put their stories together and have some real damning evidence against him. So Jackie was scared, and her tactic was to keep silent and prove to Brown that she wasn't a threat to him. That involved continuing to do charity work for Brown, 
as well as signing a contract with his lawyer pledging 25% of her songwriting income. And this same lawyer, Buddy Dallas, knew about this assault. A writer named Stanley Booth wrote a book about Brown in 1992, claiming that Jackie and Brown were lovers despite being told about the attack by her. So this is pretty disgusting. Jackie was never the same since that rape. She lost weight, she couldn't sleep, and she thought about killing herself all the time. In addition, she and her husband were convinced their home was under surveillance. Weird holes were found drilled in the walls of this relatively new home. She had filed suit against this author, but a judge ruled that the relationship between Brown and Jackie was pretty ambivalent. So now this accusation was out there. A month after this ruling, someone broke into Jackie's mother's house and beat her mother, putting her into the hospital for three weeks. Coincidentally, all of Jackie's documents about Brown were hidden in her mother's house. And after this break-in, they mysteriously disappeared. Fed up, Jackie hired former FBI agent Richard Radcliffe to administer a polygraph test on her. And she sent it to Wayne Huff, an investigator for the state's prosecutor's office in South Carolina. This test showed she wasn't lying about the rape. Around that same time in 1995, Adrian had been admitted to the hospital due to what was thought to be a prescription overdose. But Jackie feared that it was James trying to have his wife killed. And despite Jackie telling everyone her fears, no one took her seriously. This could be attributed to Adrian's public support of her husband. She was very vocal in her support of him during his prison term in 1988 after this pretty famous police arrest. So it might have been hard to believe that he wanted his wife dead. But no one could ignore the continuing domestic abuse. Brown continued to beat his wife, but she always dropped the charges. And this is not unusual in domestic abuse cases. The police had been called to Brown residence enough to realize that something was going on there. When Adrian retracted her most recent statement saying he hit her in the lip, prosecution went ahead on the case anyway. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. The story then goes back to Jackie. It had been seven years since the women first discussed this rape by Brown. And since then, Jackie had been followed and surveilled by men connected to Brown. A security expert confirmed that a hidden microphone was found at her house. So she's not crazy in making this up. By this time in her life, she was almost 40, getting divorced and working as a waitress. She had planned to go after Brown for assaulting her. Investigators Jim Saunders and Wayne Huff began seriously looking into the case. Meanwhile, Jackie felt like she was still being followed. Her therapist even noticed suspicious cars parked outside before her appointments. And another therapist had a briefcase stolen from his car containing papers on Jackie. He found it really odd because his gun was also in the car, and it wasn't taken. Around that same time, Adrian was in the beginning stages of trying to divorce James Brown. And some interesting things came to light during discovery for the divorce. James Brown earned about $5 million on his last tour, but he came away with only $150,000. The rest of it went all to his employees. That same entourage wanted to keep him on drugs like PCP because they could control him, whereas his wife and daughters wanted him clean. Adrian told her lawyer that she was trying to separate James from these men that controlled him. She claimed that she was afraid for her life because of this. And then a few days later, she was dead. Adrian's lawyer, Robert Hart, contracted the coroner's office about his client's last message. But there was no report ever found. It was amongst several reports that were destroyed when they were tempted to be moved from paper to computer disk. So this might have been an accident. This might have been intentional. Another person very suspicious of Adrian's cause of death was Kay Mixon, who worked with domestic violence victims in South Carolina. She had spoken with Adrian in the hospital in 1995 after one of her beatings. And at that time, she remembers her saying that James would never let her leave him because she knew too much. That really stuck in her head. When she heard the news of Adrian's death, she was convinced that she was murdered. This cause of death as an overdose didn't fool her at all. During this time, Jackie became involved with this dubious guy named Steve. They had been dating for a very short time. But Steve seemed to know a lot about her, and she knew very little about him. There were some really odd coincidences, like the night that she watched Forrest Gump, and then the next day he asked her if she had ever seen it. And the time she had a really long conversation with a friend about Steve, and then the next day he asked her if she'd ever had a long conversation about him. When she asked why he was in Atlanta, Even though he was from South Carolina, he jokingly said that someone had to clean up her dirty little tracks. 
even though she was a bit worried about why he was really around. She was lonely, and she really liked him, and she kept seeing him. One night, Steve picked Jackie up from the airport with a strange guy named Brian, and there they went to an unfamiliar apartment. This was just a few days before Adrian's death. Jackie and Steve went out to a bar, and when they returned, they found Brian in the apartment watching a tape of Jackie's polygraph. Pretty weird. He'd gone through her things to find it. Brian shoved her against a wall, saying no one would believe this tape. She theorized that Steve and this Brian character were trying to find out what kind of information she had on James Brown. Steve kept trying to get her to have a drink. And when she accepted this drink, she blacked out. She says she woke up the next morning to Brian walking in the door with a newspaper. And the story on page 25A said Adrian was dead. Brian told her she was too late. And Steve just told her it was either you or her. For whatever reason, they let her go and she went home to Atlanta and never saw either man again. She did, however, find out the mysterious Brian worked for a company that specialized in investigations, consulting, and process serving. Adrian's death put the kibosh on any further investigations into Jackie's rape. Circuit solicitor Barbara Morgan didn't file any charges against James Brown. All charges of domestic violence by the sheriff were also dropped. This is when Detective Steve Miller was assigned to the case. So remember, he's the investigator I mentioned in the beginning that kept all of the notes on Adrian's case. Although he saw no signs of foul play at the facility where she had her cosmetic procedure, he did find it almost deserted. Later, he discovered they'd been operating without a license. Brown's camp wasn't helpful either. Jackie kept at Miller, insisting her friend had been offed. She said they'd probably find a nasal inhaler in Adrian's purse containing PCP. And although she ended up being right, this didn't prove anything. The coroner said the cause of death was an accidental overdose. He said Adrian's body was weak from surgery. Due to various medications, PCP intake, and heart disease, she died. Miller thought that Jackie was crazy with all of her talk of murder, mysterious men, and secret surveillance. Around 2000, a police informant named Linda mentioned Adrian Brown to Steve Miller. She knew of a doctor involved in Brown's death, she said. Miller remembered this same doctor's name during his initial investigation. But at the time, he never got a hold of him. Linda was in bad health at this time and soon died. She left Miller her old appointment book and a notebook. But he retired soon, and he never took a look into why she gave these books to him. After being contacted by the journalist for CNN, he finally read through them. And this is when he read the bombshell. The notebook tells of Linda's relationship with this mysterious doctor. He wasn't involved directly in the surgery, but claimed to have murdered her afterward. Supposedly, this guy snuck into the building where Adrian's surgery was, and he switched out her pills to make it look like an accidental death. The man described to Linda how Adrian tried to cry for help, but couldn't, and the look of absolute fear on her face when she knew she was going to die. He knew every detail about the room, and even what Adrian was wearing. 
He also mentioned being worried about Detective Steve Miller finding out since he knew he was looking to question him at the time. Of course, Miller was perplexed as to why Linda waited so long to give him this notebook, but he theorized that maybe it was because she was dying and trying to clear her conscience. What connection did this man really have to Adrian Brown? Adrian had been covering at this place called Hidden Garden, where he claimed to have killed her. And Miller had been looking for this doctor. Jackie remembered Steve and Brian talking to a, quote, doctor by phone the night at the apartment. Another patient of this doctor's died by drugs prescribed by this doctor. An investigation into him found he had a history of drug abuse himself. When Linda Bennett first met this doctor, she was still a sex worker. The man initially wanted to shoot her up on his birthday and have sex with her. They ended up seeing each other regularly. Linda once overdosed on heroin, and around that time she'd written in her notebook that this doctor had tried to kill her. Linda had never used heroin before the doctor supposedly injected her. When a friend confronted him about it, he didn't deny it. Luckily, this guy eventually lost his license due to drug use. So for the story, the writer doesn't mention the doctor's name, of course. Somehow, this guy was still alive when he found the doctor. He interviewed him in 2017. He denied everything, even knowing Linda Bennett. And although she had a somewhat shady past, she was known as a solid police informant. Detective Miller believed what she had written in her notebooks. James Brown eventually remarried a few years after Adrian's death to a singer named Tommy Ray Heine. And the story sounds familiar. He claimed to beat her and was controlled by others. She said she was afraid for her life. In a 2005 documentary, she said, This is my last chance to get away from something that I'm convinced is going to kill me, and I wouldn't be the first. When the reporter for CNN found her in 2017, he asked her to elaborate. She told him that James Brown told her there was more to Adrian's death. Her surgery went well, and she was fine until someone paid her a visit. He said that's when the PCP was given to her and killed her. James Brown died on Christmas Day in 2006 from a heart attack and fluid in his lungs. But there was no autopsy. His doctor was pretty sure it wasn't natural causes but an overdose. Thirteen other people, including one of Brown's daughters, agreed and felt he should have had an autopsy, but nothing ever came of it. I mean, in the end, all we have are accusations and not much evidence. But we do have Jackie's story about the rape, the polygraph, and Linda's notebooks. But I'm not sure that this would stand up in court. The doctor involved in Adrian's death, of course, denies everything. And sadly, we only have these secondhand accounts. I mean, everyone else is dead. Even if Jackie could get something going in court, I doubt anyone would pursue a case. The CNN story really didn't seem to have much impact, sadly. It seems that Adrian Brown was possibly murdered and not clear whether James Brown or the men who controlled him might have ordered the hit. His own death is surrounded by questions that will probably never be answered. So that was the death of Adrian Brown. It's pretty apparent that people in the music business are not in control of their lives. Right now in the courts, singer Britney Spears is fighting for control of her own life. 
She was recently held in a mental facility and some say against her will. She's fighting in court for control of her finances and freedom from her father, who currently controls everything. One of my recent episodes a few weeks ago mentioned how singer R. Kelly said he's virtually broke due to how people mismanaged his millions. I think when you get that kind of fame, it's really easy to be manipulated by those people close to you and ones that you trust. Lots of celebrities get conned out of their money. One recent victim is writer Chuck Palahniuk. An accountant at his literary agency embezzled $3.4 million, leaving the Fight Club writer almost broke. Comedian Dane Cook's own half-brother and sister stole $12 million from him, almost destroying his career. So with fame comes a lot of people trying to get your money. James Brown seems to be one of just many who lost control to those who should have had his best interest. Instead, their focus was money. Take time and read this article by CNN's Thomas Lake. I'm sure I didn't tell it half as well as this guy wrote it. It definitely makes me look at Brown in different light. If you're curious to hear a really good podcast detailing his infamous run from the police, check out Disgraceland. It's one of my favorite podcasts. The host, Jake Brennan, does a hell of a job recounting crimes relating to the music world. The podcast is so well done, and Jake is really likable. He has a great voice. You'll love it. And if you like this podcast, please subscribe. And if you're feeling generous, leave a good review. Thanks a lot, guys, for listening. It's been a rough couple weeks. My boyfriend's mom died, and, you know, it's been a rough time here. So I appreciate you guys hanging on for a new episode. Thanks for listening, and catch you next week.